If you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in uh, verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Uh, I am Donnie Mathis. I'm one of the pastors here at TCC. And my day job, though, is serving as a professor of Christian studies at North Greenville University, where I teach classes mainly on the New Testament, Greek, and how to interpret the Bible. So as we begin this morning, I have a sort of an admission to make to you. I hate to-do lists. I hate them. Now there are some of you that resonate with that, and some of you that don't. Now, there are some folks in this room, like my wife, uh, who's sitting over here, Amber, uh, and by the way, you should see her wall when it gets close to Vacation Bible School. It looks like a beautiful mind. <laughs> she gets heart palpitations and a rush of adrenaline at the thought of being able to make a to-do list for the day and the week and the month and even the year, much less the opportunity to cross things off those lists. It gives her joy at the very core of who she is. And there are some of you that are like that. I'm not like that. Lists like that crush my soul. <laughs> they remind me that I'm not as young as I used to be. And I can't remember everything like I used to be able to do. When I was in college and seminary, I never had to make a list, never had to keep a calendar, because once it was locked in my mind, it was locked in my mind, and I wouldn't forget it. But I'm not like that anymore. If you ask Amber today, she will gladly regale you with the fact that I am not like that anymore. I am now the absent-minded professor. I need lists, but I hate them. Well, in our text today, we have a list. Maybe one of the few lists, to-do lists, that I've ever seen that I actually love. And it's not just because it's in the Bible. Because it describes a checklist of what God has made me to be and called me to do. I don't exactly have a life verse, but if I had one, it would be in this passage. And this morning, whether you're a list maker or a list hater, you need to lock this list of commands from Paul to Timothy into the vault of your mind so that you can bring them out day by day by day meditate on them, think upon them, digest them, and then live them out for the glory of God. So let's read what the Bible says, beginning in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things by charging them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 
But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knew those who were His. And let everyone who departs, or who names the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Maybe, maybe perhaps, God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray together. Our great God, we pray this morning that you will bless the reading and the teaching of your word. Your word is breathed out by you. You have given it as the very revelation of who you are to your people to bring us to yourself, to instruct us for how to live in fellowship with you, and so, Lord, today we pray that you would be honored and glorified by the way that it is taught, by the way that it is heard, and by the way that we respond to it. That our preaching and hearing and responding would be our worship to you For the glory of your great name and for the expansion of your kingdom. That is our solemn prayer. In the name of your great Son, Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. All right, so. We are here in 2 Timothy. This is a really personal letter that Paul writes to Timothy. And one of the things that we're going to experience in the course of this section that we have is that Timothy's going to be exhorted to contend for the truth, but not to argue. And for most of us, that's a difficult thing to recognize. How is that going to happen? Because most of the time when we think, 
of contending for the truth, we think that we're going to come into conflict with someone and we're going to win a debate or an argument. Just go on social media this afternoon and you'll see that. But Paul is exhorting Timothy. And by the way, Paul, we wouldn't have a whole lot of letters in the New Testament if Paul wasn't correcting and going after some of his opponents. It probably reveals to you how lightweight the problem is here. If he's saying don't even pay attention to them. So he exhorts Timothy here, first of all, to remind them about the gospel. But don't argue. In fact, it's quite interesting that reminding them about the gospel is going to happen as he doesn't argue. So let's see what he says there in verse 14. Remind them of these things. That's going to take us back to the previous paragraph that Aaron preached last week. And charge them before God. Now, it really should have a, a more of an idea of by charging them before God. Not to quarrel about words. Empty talk. Now, let's take a, a minute here for, uh, uh, as we, before we move on. And think about how many times this week we have either engaged in, in a conversation with someone in our, right before our eyes or engaged in through the keyboard, what if we look back on it was empty talk, even if we're defending the truth? Which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. In our efforts to defend the truth, the way that we go about it actually pushes people away from the truth. So let's see what he's telling Timothy to remind them of. In the previous paragraph, there in verse 8, notice what he says. Remember, so think about this for a second. Remember, remind. Remember? Oh, and by the way, remind. Because guess what? We don't remember. By the way, if you ever work your way through Paul's letters really carefully, you're going to find you're going to be reading the same thing over and over and over again. Because guess what? We're slow on the uptake. They were in the first century. We are in the 21st century. That's who we are. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel. Now notice here something that we see. Where is the focus of the gospel? The focus of the gospel is on Jesus, his resurrection from the dead, and his status as the Davidic king. Now let's look at another place where Paul defines his gospel. It's going to be here on the screen, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul's writing this letter to a group of folks that he's never met. He didn't found the church in Rome. He's presenting to them his gospel so that he can come there and preach, so that he can come there and share with them a spiritual gift so that he can get their help to go to Spain. Because who doesn't want to go to Spain? Especially when they don't have the gospel. And so he's going to lay out here in the very first four verses really in just a couple, the gospel that he preached when he went into the nations to proclaim who Jesus was. So let's see what he says. 
Beginning there in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, by the way, he's going to use that language here in 2 Timothy as well, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, and now he's going to explain it. It is a benefit, no grammar. Which, okay, that's going to explain what this gospel is. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Notice the connection to the Old Testament. The gospel is a story about a king and a kingdom. Promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So God in Jesus is fulfilling promises that he made. And Paul's going to unpack this in the rest of the letter to Abraham and really even promises that go back to creation that he's going to establish for himself his own people and he's going to work through them and he's going to transform this fallen world for the glory of his own name. And Jesus is the culmination, he's the apex, he's the, the mountaintop of the plan as it's all come together. And when God sends Jesus, it's kind of like in the old days on the A-team when Hannibal would get out his cigar and he would say, I love it when a plan comes together. Well, here the plan has come ultimately together in the person of Jesus. He has fulfilled God's promises. Every one. And so the gospel is concerning his son. The gospel is about Jesus, who was descended from David. Notice this emphasis on the fact that this is the Davidic king, the one that all of the prophets said God was going to send to restore and rebuild all that had been destroyed by their sin in the exile. God has done this in the person of Jesus. He is a king, and in his death and his resurrection, he's established a kingdom. And so notice what he says, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Notice the emphasis in both of these texts on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, our Lord. Here's the problem. When we try to articulate the gospel, oftentimes we don't make it about Jesus, we make it about me. I sin, I believe, I get. And let me be honest, all of those things are true. You and I have sinned. We are sinners at the very core of who we are. We have, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we have repented and placed our faith in Him. And guess what? That means we get eternal life. But those are all the effects of the proclamation of the kingship of Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus, and it changes the world. It changes us, and it's going to change all of creation when he returns. So the gospel is focused on Jesus and his kingly reign. Now think about this for a second. We got four books in our Bibles that we call gospel, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You think about how odd it is when we take gospel and we make it about us, 
Because when Mark defines what a gospel is, it's all about Jesus. It's the story of his life, the story of the establishment of his reign, and the fact that he's conquered all the powers. All the powers. You see, in the first century, gospel was not a word that described a story about anybody's life. Particularly Jesus. Gospel was a public proclamation that a king has arisen to a throne. And usually, it would be to describe the rise of a Caesar to a throne. And guess how he would be described? As Savior and Lord. You see, when we declare, when Paul declared in the first century, think about it at the end of Acts, he's in Rome. By the way, he didn't get there in the way that he hoped. He was a prisoner. But he's right down the street getting ready to stand before Caesar. And guess what's going to happen? He's going to stand before Caesar and he's going to say, Caesar, guess what? I'm here because you're not the king. There's only one king. There's only one Lord. There's only one Savior. And it's Jesus. Not you, pal. That's the kind of thing that'll get you killed. That's what he was facing as he writes this letter. He's going to die. But he still doesn't lose because the king has entered into his kingdom and the king has called people to himself and Paul's one of them. And he demands everything about us for his purposes, for the accomplishment of his kingdom. You see, the problem that we often have in our thinking about the gospel is that we make the starting line the finish line. Believing in Jesus is not the goal. Believing in Jesus to miss out on hell, to feel good about being forgiven, it ain't the goal. The goal is to know God, be transformed by God, and guess what? The way you know God is by believing in Jesus. You see, that's the starting line of a race that Paul's going to talk about in this passage. Where we live under his kingly reign, and that's our joy. So let's see what happens in verse 15. In verse 15, the Bible says, do your best. Strive with all your effort to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This verse is what I live to do. And frankly, it ought to be what all of us live to do. Because our number one responsibility above all else is to be servants of our King. The idea that we can separate into various bins in our lives, our work and our family and our faith is never found in the Bible. He is the King over everything. Everything. 
Now, as we look at this, we make a pretty quick assumption in this last part of the verse, rightly handling the word of truth. And we, we immediately jump, at least I do most of the time, to thinking that he's talking about the scriptures as a whole. But if we look at the way Paul uses that line, word of truth, in his other letters, I think we're going to find something interesting. So look on the screen in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, listen to what Paul says. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Notice that we have been purchased for the glory of Christ. That's not what I was going to talk about, but that's free. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, and now he's going to define it, the gospel that causes your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with his promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. Notice the, the enduring nature of this. Then look in Colossians 1.5b to 7a. I know that's odd. Of this, but Paul writes strangely in these letters. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So notice here, when Paul says, rightly handling the word of truth, the first thing, it doesn't exclude the scriptures, but the very first thing that he's talking about is we as followers of Jesus, servants of the Lord, are to rightly handle the gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel in a way that glorifies Jesus, that exalts his kingship, and calls people to repent and submit to a king, knowing that there is a place in the kingdom for them with a good, great, and loving king. The other thing we see back here in verse 15 is that work is not a no-no in the Christian life. It's not. Think about how our compressed gospel leads to a problem down the road. If we make the starting line the finish line and we're afraid on any level of anybody having any idea that we ever thought that we might in some small way think we earned something, then we just say, well, in order not for anybody to think that I've earned my salvation, I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. We use the gospel as an excuse not to grow. That means we haven't rightly handled the word of truth. We haven't rightly handled the gospel. We haven't rightly handled the scripture. The work we are called to do is a demonstration of what it means to be a Christian. We just got to make sure we get the source and the ground from which we work correct. And thankfully, Paul's going to talk about it in a minute. On the next uh, slide here, you have the um, facade of the central building of my alma mater. 
the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That is the last phrase of verse 15 in Greek with a couple of typos, oddly enough. That's bad when it's in stone. (laughs) Capitalization issues. This is, was, and is supposed to be the guiding force for everything that institution does. Rightly handling the word of truth. And when I went there in the fall of 1994, as a 20 two-year-old young man. It was the best of times and the worst of times. Because this institution that I love only had that as an inscription on a building. And it was the best of times Because that was about to change. It was the worst of times because that was about to change. It was going to bring conflict. And in the midst of that, at 9 o'clock on Tuesday morning, in the second class that I ever took, I met a man who was very strange. He was my New Testament professor. I think he's why I can't remember things anymore. I'm going to blame him. And he came into class in the midst of turmoil Turmoil that could honestly hurt him. And he opened up his Greek New Testament and he taught the Bible. When it came time for the days that he was telling us about the background of a New Testament book, which if you've ever been in a class where they talk about that, it can be better than, as my dad says, two Samanecs and a pillow. He would dress up like Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, and he would perform the background material. And it was awesome. And as the semester moved to the spring, When I had Old Testament at 8 a.m., I had a professor that was trying to make all of us either mad at him or mad at the administration. Dr. Blevins walked into class. He opened his Greek New Testament and taught us the Bible. And the reason I, frankly, even knew that that was on the building 
was for extra credit in his Greek exegesis class. He made us go write it out. And I have in my house one that another student made that I absconded with since I got to be his grader that's in wood, carved out, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. That must be what we're about. And at the end of that first semester on my final exam, he wrote on my test, you need to do a PhD in New Testament. He may have written it on every test. I don't know. It would be something that he would do. But I believed him. And God used this strange, very awkward man to change my life. To give me a purpose that I didn't think was what God had called me to do. Rightly dividing the word of truth. We need tools to handle it well. And that's what our lives are to be about. Now, in the next part of this, Paul's going to tell Timothy to steer clear of foolish talk. Steer clear of foolish talk. Look at what he says. Verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble. It will lead people into more and more ungodliness. They will progress in ungodliness, not progress in the truth. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who had, have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, this is not the first time you hear about good, well, not good old, Hymenaeus. We'll just leave it at that. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verses 18 through 20, and really to get the whole context, you can go back to verse 3. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now notice what's going to happen here. Holding faith, believing the gospel, having a good conscience, transformed conscience. By rejecting this, good conscience, your faith, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may not learn to, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now think about how great that would be. Paul sends a letter to Timothy, it's being read to the church in Ephesus, and by the way, your name's in the first chapter, and you're told not to blaspheme, and for the church to kick you out. That's great. You would think that this, if somebody was really a believer, this would say, Whoa, I need to slow down here and figure out if what I'm saying is right. Not so much. Even now, after Paul writes this second letter, guess what? Hymenaeus and Philetus are still trying to get people to progress. And here's the problem. It was the problem that happened at my seminary. People wanted to progress into something new and different. Trying to make a gospel more palatable to a culture that was changing. 
and they lost, in many ways, the gospel. You see, it's, it, it, it's something that we have to always be on guard against. We must study the Word and seek to find the truth in the Word. And, and sometimes we've read the truth incorrectly. And sometimes we need to change. But change for the sake of change, particularly at the altar of the culture, is death to us. Think about how often we get drugged into foolish talk. Sometimes about important things. Sometimes not so much. Mostly not so much. And our inclination to go to battle might not be God's intention. So what do we do? What do we do? We've got to rely on God's power to preserve his people. And we've got to respond as approved workers. That's what Paul's going to talk about in verses 19 to 26. So let's just read all of it, and then we'll walk back through it. Notice what he says. Nevertheless, it's a little stronger than, than but. You got Hymenaeus and Philetus who have spoken this irreverent babble. They, are, they, they think they're progressing in the truth. They're pro progressing in ungodliness. In fact, the fact that they're progressing in ungodliness is probably a pretty good demonstration of the fact that they're not progressing in the truth because the truth is going to lead to godly behavior, not ungodliness. The problem is they swerve from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Essentially what that means is they're saying that the resurrection is not the being raised to a glorified physical body. That's what the resurrection is. It is not what they were saying, some kind of spiritual experience, which could mean, well, if, it's, if the resurrection is just spiritual experience, it's already happened, I can do whatever I want in the flesh, like go run around with a bunch of women or whatever. That happened in the early church. It's kind of sorted, I know. Or we're just going to deny ourselves of everything like you can't get married. See that in these letters. The resurrection, in fact, they, didn't, they wanted to escape the physical body. What the resurrection is, is the transformation of a physical body to be made fit for the presence of a king. Now, sorry, that was a rabbit trail. Verse, verse 19, nevertheless, in spite of all of this, in spite of all that they've done, in spite of the rot that their teaching brings in the body, God's got this. God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal. The Lord knew those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in the great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they bring quarrel. It's only going to lead to a fight. It's not going to lead to the truth. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Guess what? We are. But 
kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, and what's described here is evil that's done particularly against you. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So let's walk through this really quickly. The first point that Paul makes here is, Timothy, you don't have to worry because God has established his people, he's created his people, and he cares for his people. Look at verse 19. God's firm foundation stands. No matter what they do, God will preserve his people. There are always going to be people in the church who are not believers. God knows who those who are his because he's chosen them for himself. He knows. You don't have to worry about that. God's got this. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to be faithful. But ultimately, the victory here is God's. Not yours. Now, notice what happens next. This is awesome. Excuse me. The Lord knew those who are his. Now, what we've got here is a quotation from the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of Numbers chapter 16, verse 5. So let's turn back to Numbers chapter 16. You may not have read that in your quiet time lately, but it's a doozy. Verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 200 chiefs of the congregation. This is a bunch of folk. Important folk. Chosen from the assembly. Well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. That's kind of funny. And the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Basically, they're wanting to go into the tabernacle, to the meeting. Both, really. And they want to be priests. They're not. They're Levites. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and his company, In the morning, the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, call his, Korah and all his company, put fire in them, put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, like they're going to offer an offering to God. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, to stand before the congregation and minister to them, and that he has brought you near to him, all your brothers and sons of Levi is with you, and you would seek the priesthood also? That makes sense. Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron to you? Nothing. 
that you grumble against them. So here's what's going to happen. Next day, they're going to be standing at their tents. And notice what happens in verse 20. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from this congregation that I may consume them in the moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? Led them into false teaching. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Save the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. Now if God says get away, you better get away because it's getting ready to get real. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. These men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Guess what happens? Ground opens up, they're swallowed. The Lord creates and cares for his people. He does. He's got it. He fights for us. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have anything to do. So let's see how he ends that verse back there in 2 Timothy. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord, let everyone who belongs to the Lord, depart from iniquity. So there is a responsibility that goes with God's sovereignty. So notice what happens in verse 20 and 21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold. So what's going to happen here is... There in the last part, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now Paul's going to give an illustration to describe this. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. They are not honorable in and of themselves based on what they're made of, but on what you do with them. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful for the master of the house, ready for every good work. So now, what he's saying here is, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be daily, continually cleansed from your sin, set apart from, from sin for the work of the Lord. So, we need to be, someone I heard recently say, professional repenters. We don't just repent one time when we're called to faith in Jesus Christ. We need to repent day after day, frankly not that, minute, maybe second after second after second. Because we are filled with sin, but we have a Savior who has saved us from it. We have the Spirit who says you're sinning and calls us to repentance. We need to be repenters so that we are cleansed for honorable use. All of us can be used by God. Now, <coughs> excuse me. Last thing. You got to run to the right goal with the right people for the right reason. Run to the right goal with the right people for the right reason. So let's look at the right reason first. Within the last part of verse 22, they call. On the Lord from a pure heart. They call on the Lord.
from a pure heart. Look at verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. All of our obedience springs not from a desire to show God we are better than our brother or sister. All of our obedience should spring not from a desire to make God glad that he chose us for himself. All of our obedience should spring forth from a pure heart that, guess what? He gave us. He gave us. And so when we're sitting at our computer or at our phone today, and something comes in our timeline, I think it would be really wise of us to ask ourselves, is my response to what foolish thing, somebody that may or may not be a believer has said, is this going to be edifying? Is it going to accomplish anything or is it just going to add to the noise? We probably won't be posting as much on Facebook if we ask ourselves that question. The right people. The right people. Notice what it says there in the middle part of verse 22. Along with those who call on the Lord. The way that we're going to be able to flee sin and pursue righteousness is to be with God's people. We're going to be destroyed by the devil. If we're not with God's people gathering together corporately to worship, we're going to be destroyed. If we're not with a smaller group of people talking about the way that the devil is attacking us, studying the word together so that we can grow in our knowledge of the gospel and grow in our knowledge of the scriptures, if we're not about that, we're toast. So for the right reason, from a pure heart, not to win an argument, because let's just be honest, usually that's what we want to do. We want to win. With the right people, God's people, the Lord knows those who are His, with the right goal. Notice what he says in verse 22. Flee youthful passions. In fact, those passions could very well be a desire to win and to stick it to the idiots in the congregation. When I was at Southern Seminary, I worked helping students find part-time pastoral positions. And I wish I knew to take them here and say, all right, you're going to face trial and difficulty in this church that frankly has been pastored by people who went to this seminary who may or may not have really known the gospel really well. And that's going to be trouble, and that's going to be difficult. They are not the enemy. You don't have to win. You've got to know who the enemy is, and it is the people. And you don't have to win. So, the right goal. Pursue righteousness. Righteousness is a status. We have been declared right before God, but we are to pursue righteousness in that we are to pursue Christ and that His righteousness would shine through us. We are to pursue faithfulness and love and peace. 
So, pursue what is right and good. Pursue love. Pursue peace. Then notice the long-suffering nature of leadership. And the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Here's the thing. If we are going to be used by God, we cannot hold a grudge. We cannot bear the wrong that has been done against us because we're never going to know what it is to walk in the newness of life and the fellowship with God that we desire if we're holding on to that. Never. Notice what he says. If they attack you directly, and that's what's happening here. If they attack you directly, your responsibility is not to pulverize them into the ground with your arguments and your truth and you smash them to bits. You take it. And you love. And you have compassion. Because here's the thing. They may or may not be a believer, but by golly, they are for sure ensnared by the devil. They will do all manner of evil against you. But you love. You show compassion. You speak the truth in love. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. And by the way, when John writes the letter to Ephesus in Revelation, that's the thing they've forgotten to do. They've stomped out the false teacher. They don't love anybody. Love. Because here's the thing. Our goal is the salvation of the snared. Notice what happens. God may perhaps grant them repentance. No matter how evil they have been to you, they've still been made in the image of God. No matter what horrible thing someone does to you personally or says about you on Facebook or somewhere else in social media, no matter what it is, your responsibility as a follower of Jesus Christ is not to annihilate them. It's not. God's the judge. You be compassionate because who knows? They might be baiting you, hoping that this Christian is going to come at me like everybody else. I know people in my family who would. But when we respond in compassion and love and mercy, God uses that. And notice what happens. God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And then look at what happens in verse 26. This is awesome. And it's all of our story, by the way. They may escape from the snare of the devil. And by the way, that's a good thing for us to remember. All of us, at one point in our lives, were in the snare of the devil. We were caught up, and we were captured alive. 
Bible. Think about the vividness of that picture. That we're, we're trapped in a, in a live trap, and we can't get out. And maybe sometimes we don't even know we're trapped. But notice the last thing. This is awesome. We've been captured by the devil, but guess what? God may grant a knowledge of the truth. God may grant repentance leading to a knowledge of truth that we may escape. And guess what? The goal of this is to do his will. That his will there is not the devil's will. It's God's will. God takes sinners ensnared alive by the devil that he wants to drag into hell. And God saves them. And God uses them for his will. And sometimes it might be the person that, by golly, today, if you're really honest, you'd say, really, I don't want him to be in heaven with me. That's sin. And we're all prone to it. Every single one of us. And Paul says, Timothy, I don't care what they've done to you. If you love them, you be compassionate toward them, don't annihilate them. Say that Jesus is the king and he is a beautiful savior. And if you keep exalting the king and you keep talking about how great the work that Christ has done, God may give them repentance. You don't have to win because Christ has won. So let's walk in that today and every day for the glory of our King. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this time of response, be perfectly honest, I know that there have been many times in my life, and probably even this week, where I've wanted to, to say a word to defend myself or to defend you like you need me to defend you, where I wanted to win for the sake of winning and not really for the exalting of your great name. And there are people that have wronged me, and there are people that have wronged folks in this congregation far worse than anyone probably has ever wronged me. And they're struggling today with what your word says. Lord, I pray that you would give them the grace to respond. If that means coming here to the front and getting on their face before you, I pray that you would give them the freedom to respond in that way. If they need to pray with one of our pastors, give them the grace to not be afraid to move. Because fear that arises from wondering or caring about what somebody to the right of us or the left of us thinks is from the devil. It's not from you. So Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would grant repentance that leads to a knowledge of truth both for folks who are your sons and daughters already and folks who have yet to call upon the name of Jesus. And that we could celebrate this morning escape. Escape from the snare of the devil to do your will. 
until Christ comes and makes all things new. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord.